This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to Latitude's In Session Podcast. On today's episode, I've got a guy that I've followed along with for five or six years, and he has some of the first YouTube videos that I've ever watched of hunting, to be honest with you. It was, he's a guy from New York, and he posted video, I think it's been about five years, of a really good public land New York buck getting killed with his bow, and it just got me all fired up. And ever since then, I've followed along, and Took us a couple years to finally reach out and talk to each other, but we did and we we clicked and you know, we don't talk as much as I'd like to necessarily, but I do consider this guy one of my really good friends. And uh twenty twenty one when I killed that last big deer right after my dad passed, he was one of the first people that I texted and I texted a picture of that buck laying on the ground. And you were in the stand, correct? I was actually just hanging in a tree. Like I climbed up like a hedge maple to watch this field on a new chunk of public that I was going to hunt. And I knew that there were some deer in the area because I found some sheds. So I was hanging in there. I had been wondering the whole time why I wasn't getting anything from you. Cause it was a little bit into the season at that point, just because of how your life was going at that point. And then all of a sudden I got these pictures and I was just like, you just gave me chills thinking about, it cause I remember not to get too deep, but I just remember texting you and being like, your dad was with you on that one, dude. And I feel like that was like, even though we knew each other, I felt like that was a, a, a changing point in like our friendship because you like knew how much family meant to me and I knew how much it meant to you. And like, I didn't even know the situation with your grandfather in the first year, how that kind of played out. So it was just, it was like, I had chills then I just got chills now, but it, yeah, it was, I was, I was, I was out doing deer stuff when you killed that deer. And I still, I still have the pictures all in line on my phone. Yeah. It was really cool that you shared that with me and to see the consecutive photos like that was was awesome. And and so the guy I'm talking about is Tyler Anthony. He's from New York. He runs a YouTube channel and an Instagram called Hitting the Dream. And he posts some really good videos on there. Like I said, I followed along for a long time and just a very genuine guy. And he's another one of those guys that I just consider a silent killer. And I'm starting to take a little bit of pride in trying to find those guys. And so, so man, I'm, I'm super excited to have you on the show today. I can't wait to pick your brain and try to learn from you. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. No, man, I appreciate you having me on here. And like I said to you earlier, when you asked, I was like, I don't know what I can really bring a value that's going to be different than something else. But if anybody gets anything out of it, uh, that that's to all of our benefit, I guess. Right. So I love learning. So I love talking. There's only one other thing I'd rather be doing than talking about hunting. And that's probably sitting with my dog and my girlfriend, but she'd probably say I'd rather be talking on anyway. So. <laughs> I, I totally understand that. And, you know, I think that you will bring a lot of value to the show today. Like I said, you're a silent killer and you have different tactics that you have to utilize being in New York. And we're going to get into all that. But I, like I said, I'm really excited to pick your brain. I think the listeners are definitely going to be able to take some good things away from this and probably a little added passion on top of their hunting season from you because you're a super passionate guy. And I'm the same way. And I really appreciate that. 
Yeah, if I could, if I could do that at least, even if they don't learn anything, then it's a win-win in my book because I just love seeing people fired up about it. Absolutely, man. And you can tell like we kind of already get fired up and start talking mm-hmm. faster and stuff. And I love how it's like the, you know, that effect. But uh, but let's get into the show today, man. I'd really like to just start out by getting an introduction of yourself and kind of how you got into hunting. All right. Yeah. So my name is actually my, the funny thing is you said Tyler Anthony, for whatever reason, I made it Tyler Anthony back in like high school on some of my other stuff. And my, that's my middle name, Anthony. So my, my, my last name is Skaronsky. Cause I was going to be like, how is he? He's going to be good if he can pronounce that one without even asking me how to pronounce it. But it's uh, yeah, my name is Tyler Skaronsky. I'm from Western New York, kind of a little bit more North of where, of where you were originally from Jake, as, as you know, but just uh, your typical guy that just grew up in a hunting family. My dad's whole side. I mean, I've got photo albums of the pictures and it's everything. Deer hunting, pheasant hunting, rabbit hunting, all those kind of things. And like my great grandfather was the, I'm going to go out and whatever season it is and whatever game I'm going after, I'm going to kill it because I need to fill the freezer and that's how my family is going to eat. And then my grandfather was kind of the, took it to the next level and everyone was like, oh, I need my tag filled called Joe. So then Joe, you know, my grandfather would be just, he'd find a way to get a deer killed if someone needed one for the freezer or whatnot, and then pass it on to my dad and my dad. He wasn't as passionate as the two generations prior to him, but my dad was always super insightful and he was just such a great educator. You know, he taught me every, all, he gave me all the groundwork that I needed to uh, then take it to the next level. And that's what he always says to me. He's like, you just took something that I I was teaching you to give us an opportunity to be out in the woods together. And you took it to a level of, you know, whether it be the passion or the, the willing to learn or whatever it is, I just took it to the next level because I enjoyed it so much and just loved animals, honestly, in general, and wanting to understand why they do what they do. And that led to a passion that's a pretty general, uh, I'd call myself like a generalist when it comes to the outdoors, but if I had to give everything up, I'd, I'd still keep my bow hunting for for big games. So yeah, that's pretty much just the gist of me. I, I love the outdoors. I love everything about it. I love being able to say I can at least do every little aspect of it. But at the end of the day, I love bow hunting white tails and that's why we're talking. I love it, man. So since you've started hunting, I'd like to get into like your evolution as a bow hunter a little bit. And so you learned from your, your family growing up and you've obviously evolved into a very successful hunter at this point. And so what did that evolution look like? Like if I look at my evolution, it started out hunting, uh, actually like screw in stands with my grandpa, like homemade wooden stands. And then we had some cheap ladder stands and some hang ons. And, you know, I was, I think 16 and we, we finally got some summit Viper climbers and we used those go. a lot and I got into the mobile hunting and stuff. And so I just kind of want to hear like your path to get to where you're at. Yeah. So, uh, and there's hundreds of thousands of people that are probably going to have a similar story to this. So I don't want to make it sound like I did it before everyone else did. But, uh, when I was just about age to start hunting the property that my dad had permission to hunt on, just someone else bought it and didn't matter anymore. You know, we went to the guys out, this guy's like a crazy hunter. He actually still lives in town here. And he, uh, I think he's the fastest fastest or youngest person to ever finish the dangerous big five or whatever in Africa or something like that. So he's like a huge hunter and he's, he was super cool about us coming there. He showed us his whole trophy room. He's a really nice guy, but he's just like, yeah, I know you guys, I bought it for a family farm and uh, we're going to deer hunt it and you guys can't hunt it. We're like, okay, well at that point, my dad's uncle showed us this chunk of public land and was like, Hey, this is where I hunt. It's at that point. I think it was only, 700 acres ended up they ended up buying up another section and now that specific piece is over a thousand acres but so he showed us that spot i was like hey this is where i deer hunt i do pretty good i you know i put deer in the freezer at a minimum and uh you're more than welcome to hunt some of the spots that i had and it was kind of like the old school it probably wasn't even legal back then but like they made like wooden stands in the trees even on the state land and i don't really you know i was so young i was Heck, I, I bet you I was eight years old the first time I hunted there with my dad, eight to 10. So I don't really know what the laws were, but I obviously wouldn't have been looking into them at that point. I was just like, whatever my dad says is probably right, you know? So we would hunt these stands and then it kind of evolved similar like what you said. And my dad was always a tinker. He's always been really good with his hands. And if uh, it's kind of a, a motto maybe that we have, and it's always like gas over gear. I'm not going to spend money on something that I can make or get away with. 
I'd rather have it for the gas to, to go hunting or go fishing or do whatever. So he was like, well, I can build a tree stand. So he built it out of like one by one steel stock and did the platform out of wood. And we would like take them up into the woods and hang them in a couple different spots. And then same thing, we went from there and we ended up with the, uh, going the summit route and getting the climbers, which actually my dad got that one. He's like, Hey, here, you take this one. I had like the 30 pound API or whatever, those really old, super comfortable. It's got like the, like the couch seat in it. But I mean, the thing had to have been over 20 pounds, you know? And he would give me that and it was just like, all right, well, let's just go hunting. And my dad always was like, you got to go to the spot. You go to the spot and eventually the deer is going to walk by. And I just kept thinking to myself like, okay, dad's got his spot. I don't have a spot. Like he, that's the spot he knows he'll kill deer at some point, whether he understood why or when was going to be better. He just was going to go there. And I didn't have that spot. And I refused. He even told me to go there at times, but I was like, nah, I'm going to go find, I will find a spot so that when I kill my first deer, I feel like a sense of grat, uh, not gratitude fulfillment, you know, that like I found that spot and I got that deer killed. And like, you can look at me and be like, I'm proud of you, son type of thing. So I just kind of started bouncing around and I was, you know, I probably, I probably made more mistakes than I even knew I was making at the time, but just ran around with that climber, missed a lot of deer, told my dad about deer that he didn't believe I was seeing. And then finally, one day I just started connecting on some deer and my dad was like, Holy crap, this kid, this kid's figuring some stuff out. So then we started kind of bouncing around a little bit more. And, uh, climbers turned into grabbing the cheapest lock on that I could with a set of sticks. And then I actually use a a bunch of latitude stuff myself. So it was just kind of a, a progression in that direction. And really what it was, was I, after starting hunting on public land, it was a, how do I figure out how to get closer to deer along with how do I make this light enough that I don't like burn myself out on a weekend hunt from moving, you know, heavy gear around so much. I completely relate to that and that entire story. And I don't know if I've ever told this story on a podcast or not. It's possible, but I'm not positive. Uh, When I was a kid, I was hunting with my dad and grandpa and we had this piece of property that we could hunt and it was just a big brushy area and it had fields all around it. And it was like, let's say a 50 acre brushy area that had actually brush hog trails. So you could see the deer cross out of bedding and go to the ag. And uh, we would always sit on top of that. And they had a coffee machine down below and all sorts of stuff. Like it was the real deal, but we would sit up top and it had big walls, like four foot walls. And I was a kid and I had this big, shiny, like 40 inch axle to axle target bow. It was a shiny blue bow. And I had a milk crate that I would have to shift around to shoot over top of those walls as a kid. So yeah, so I'd be sleeping up there and my grandpa would be like, hey, Jake, there's a buck right here. And then I'd go over there and I'd move my milk crate. I never even got an arrow off of those deer because, because I'd be like scratching the milk crate around. But, uh, but I remember my first taste of being mobile was we would watch this buck come out in the corner of this field. Every night I'd go with my dad and grandpa and we always just sat up there with our bows. We'd never get a shot at that deer. And he was only like 200 yards away and we could hunt that spot, but there was no big trees around that field. It was all just brushy hedgerow. And one day I told my dad and my grandpa, I was like, Hey, I want to go sit over there. And they're like, well, why do you want to do that? I was like, I want to kill that buck. And they're laughing. They're like, well, yeah, my grandpa and my dad had a good way of teaching me lessons. They would let me do it as long as I wasn't going to get hurt. And so I, I get down out of that little tower that we had and I get down in the brush and I crawl over the corner of that hedgerow. And maybe a half hour later, that big eight point steps out at 10 or 15 yards right in front of me. And I drew that blue bow back and I had my grandpa's old Fletch Hunter release, like the the old, like, uh, it looked like a, a black wrist sling and then like a black barrel. And it was like a really back in the day, mm. it was a good release. I still have it actually. I would never use it nowadays, but, uh, but it was still set for my grandpa because he was using that one. And so when I drew back, I couldn't reach the trigger on that deer and I had gloves on. It was a little bit cold, but, but so I just sat there at full draw, just watching that deer and I ended up letting the bow down and he ran off. But oh my, no. Yeah. But my grandpa and dad were just losing it in that tower. I guess they were like, I cannot believe that he got that close to that deer. Like to them, it was foreign language. But to me, after I did that, like that was as a young kid, it was an awakening for me because I was like, oh, I can like, you can move on these deer and you can, you know, be mobile. And I didn't call it being mobile back then, but like, you can just go f- see a deer and like like see where the deer's at and then the next night like go over there and that's kind of how my style started it was like that was my evolution too was just moving around and chasing deer around and probably messing up more than i didn't like you said so that's 
that's a cool story and it's really relatable to me. And, you know, growing up in New York, we have a couple different things that make hunting, especially public land. And I know that you're on public land a lot, a little bit more difficult. So New York has a law where you can't run trail cameras on public land. And if you talk to a lot of people, it's a gray area, right? Because it doesn't specifically state that you can't, but it says like you can't have any it's personal property. Yeah. Carry in, carry out law. And- yeah. So, so you've never ran a camera to pursue a deer, correct? Right. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've thrown them up on this year was the first year that I had like my own piece of private that, uh, a family in law, someone owns. I could throw it up. There was a couple of times when I was real young, I'd like, I did put up a camera for like right before season and it, but it was basically even on those, the one public piece that I did do that when I was really young, I never ended up seeing those deer. And it was basically just like national grid geographic taking pictures, you know, it wasn't, it was nothing. It was never anywhere or anything that I could use. I just put one up. Cause I was like, Oh my God, I found this trail camera in my dad's bin, you know? And then it just, so yeah, I've never, I've never used it to pursue a deer. I've never shot a deer that I have a trail camera picture of. Just never been really something that was part of my arson. Yeah. And that's kind of why I wanted to have you on the show today. That's a big part of it is, you know, there's a lot of states that are considering banning cameras that have already banned trail cameras. And it's something that we might want to get ahead of. I don't know what the answers are exactly or what exactly is going to happen, but it's always good to have more knowledge about how to just beat that, right? Like how can you how can you hunt and be a good hunter without cameras? And so I really wanted to bring you on to take a deep dive into the tactics that you've kind of evolved with throughout your life that to you probably seem really basic because it's something you do on a daily basis. But to a lot of us, I think it's going to be a big awakening of, you know, what it might take to get on big deer and consistently kill deer in a high pressured state year after year, like you do. So I'd like to dive into that a little bit. And you know, the first thing I want to get into is what your spring or summer scouting approach is, knowing that you can't utilize a trail camera. Because a lot of what I do here in Ohio and in New York, I ran cameras on a lot of private. And then I had a lot of private access near public that I like the ag fields and I could run cameras sure. over there as well, too. So yeah, there was ways around it. But being down here, I run cameras on public all the time. I run cameras all over the place. And so I really just want to get like your ideology and thought process on scouting spring and summer specifically knowing you can't run those cameras. Right. Yeah. So to backtrack to what I said earlier, I'm, I definitely consider myself though. I first and foremost, a bow hunter. Um, I'm like an outdoor generalist. I love Turkey hunting. I love deer hunting. I love duck hunting. I love rabbit hunting. Anything and everything that you can chase, I'm probably doing it or I've done it before. So I will, preface all of this with saying that there's a big part of that that helps me be a better deer hunter because even just in the scouting aspect like i'm out turkey and i just went up to the adirondacks with my buddy and we were driving walking around these huge vast pieces of public and i'm like yo look at this run through this saddle right here i bet you they're bedded up there and they're doing this and we get to the top we kick the deer off the top and so i stopped and looked he's like dude we're looking for turkey like what are you doing I was like, but I might never be up here again. And we might want to come back. Like I got to at least take this in and like figure out, could I hunt somewhere right here? Or if I wasn't going to hunt right here, what would be my next step when I came back? So that's a really big part of mine. You know, when I'm going out, uh, trout fishing in the spring, if it's somewhere near somewhere I can hunt, whether it be public or like I said, I've only ever killed, I think two deer on private. So it's probably not the best. I, I probably don't have very many examples to help with that, but um, you know, every once in a while, there's a, a stream that runs near a, a piece of public or something. So I'm out there fly fishing. I'm looking for deer crossings. I'm taking the, you know, paying attention to different low spots. Like if there might be a flat area before it goes up a hill and maybe there's a, a scrape in there. So I'm always trying to take in those little opportunities within other opportunities to gather as much knowledge as possible. Outside of that, like I said, I just love walking around the woods. So I'll, I'll get out there. And some of it, for sure, like I said, I'm not going to try to act like I'm reinventing the wheel, like listening to stuff that you've said and other guys in different podcasts, getting out there and trying to get a little bit more information instead of just picking out this new piece of public and I want to go check it out and then just meandering through the woods and hoping to run into some sign that I think is of any value. Try to say like, if I could hunt right now, where would I go try to hunt? And then go and try to find those spots and see 
Is there a trail going through a saddle on a ridge? Is there big rubs somewhere? Where are the scrapes? And that, that, you know, all led into wanting to go shed hunting and doing stuff like that. So with all of that, like I said, I just try to take those opportunities that don't feel like I'm just, it's hard to say wasting time because scouting to me isn't wasting time. I don't think anyone thinks it is, but I love being able to do one thing and get something else out of it. So I just try to embrace the moment and get as much information as I can every time I'm out in the woods. The last, you know, four or five years for me, I've been solely focused on whitetails and like, I don't fish very much anymore. I kind of quit golfing. Like I don't turkey hunt a whole lot. I'll go out and film some buddies or like take some youth hunters or something, but I'm just really focused on deer hunting and it's like a 365 day process. And even with all that, like sometimes I'm not successful like last year. Right. And, and so to see that you're still enjoying all these other things and you're out being an outdoorsman and a sportsman and still consistently getting it done. I think what that's telling me a lot of is that you're very good at like hunting on the fly in season and you're very good at like the in season game and the in season scouting. And that's very important as well. So let's get into that a little bit real quick, just because we're on this topic. If I want to hunt a new property, I will pound out miles on that new property. Like I picked up another one that I didn't realize was a little bit closer to home and, uh, I had never hunted it before. So I went there, I rabbit hunted it. I turkey hunted it. I shed hunted it. I put more miles after shed season just to walk around once the snow had really melted. And I'm telling you, like I had it, I had it registered and I, I just had thought to myself that I should do it after hearing about like how you, and I think, I don't know if it was Glitzky or some of those just different people actually putting a log in their phone and like how many miles that I do. So I did, I was keeping miles and I was letting it trace on my Onyx, you know, so I could see where I'd already been. So I don't waste any more time unless I really need to see something. And I put like 120 miles in on this one property. And like I said, that was pheasant hunting. That was rabbit hunting. There was all these other things. And I was picking up little pieces and going back and forth to them because of stuff I learned. And I really only do that if it's on a property that I've never been to before, because the next year when I go, I don't need to just see something and reevaluate it by scouting. I'll just go back through and like, I'm, I'm chasing a gobble up this ridge as I'm going up that way. I'm peeking around and be like, did any of those rubs kind of get touched up in this rub line last year that I might've missed. So I don't waste the time to go do that when I could be going fly fishing with my girlfriend who loves to fly fish, or I could be working with our dogs or going, getting more Turkey hunting in, you know? So I don't, I try not to take that time away from other avenues of passion, you know? So then when it comes to getting into season, that's when I really, I reevaluate the stuff that I had learned over the different years. And then I'll recheck those in a, a hunting fashion. You know, I, I'm not just going to walk to that rub line. I'm going to say to myself, if I am going to hunt that rub line, how am I going to get in there? Evaluate it at that point and say, okay, yeah, I'm going to set up here or no, what is plan B from here? I already can just blow past this and uh, move forward to the next sign that I had found previous and see if that had heated up again this year. Yeah. So you're kind of taking, like you're building up that Intel over the course of multiple years. And that's, what's kind of giving you that data you need to go in there and hunt that deer. That makes a lot of right. sense to me. So, so let's talk about locating that deer real quick. So you've done your spring scouting, you've been out in the summertime a little bit, you know, whether it's turkey hunting or, or trapping or whatever you've got going on. And you're finding that, you know, those little tidbits of sign, you're putting that together. What actually determines if you're going to go hunt an area or not? Do you, are you the, are you the type of guy where you're just going to go take a sit at that spot, regardless of what inventory you have of that area? Or do you want inventory of some good deer in there as well? Yeah, it's kind of a, I can say one thing and then I can wash it away with the next statement, you know? So because I'm kind of a generalist, there's definitely years, like I said, I've, I've killed deer that I find to be pretty dang good. Like I'd probably shoot them on a traveling trip, you know, but I've also shot a lot of hundred inch three-year-olds or, you know, 112 inch two and a half year olds that probably had a lot of potential, you know? So it's like, it's, it's a weird thing because using trail cameras, I feel like I could find out that there are definitely higher caliber deer, but I also wonder to myself at times, if that was a possibility would I not enjoy it as much because then I'd get wrapped up in the, that deer got me excited when he came in, 
but the you know the little electronic piece in my brain is just like wait now nah, you can't be that excited dude there's there's a 140 here somewhere you know and then that deer that i would have been jacked to shoot and like call my buddies up about now i'm not excited about it so it's a kind of a it's, it's definitely a balancing act and i just kind of take it season by season really you know last year i didn't hunt nearly as much as i had in years past just because the way my life was going with different things and i just kind of said to myself i'm gonna go out and just hunt have fun and if a hundred inch deer walks by and it gets me all jazzed up because it was a sweet hunt or i was you know had to work through rainy misty crappy snowy weather and i'm like this will be a cool hunt i'm gonna let an arrow fly then i was gonna do it and if those deer didn't get me excited and i wanted to wait or eat a tag because i didn't see a pope and young or better deer you know a real good age class deer then that was going to be it too so that's kind of how I just go through season to season. If I can find a, uh, I shouldn't even say a deer. Cause I, I don't, I've never said there's one giant deer here. I got to hunt it. But like that one property I was talking about, I know I had sent at, when I was hanging in that tree, when you had sent me the picture of your big one, that's the same property that I, I think I might've sent you the velvet pictures of that giant. Yeah. So like there was that one, there was a bunch of other ones that were, you know, easily right around the Pope and young thing. So I was like, okay, there's numbers here. There's, there's like a vast opportunity. It's not a thousand acres with one good deer. It's a thousand acres with probably 80 deer that I would be willing to shoot, you know, launch an arrow at, and I'll let the deer make the decision for me. Basically, you know, like, like I said, does my heart get pumping? No, I really want to I really want to keep after that big deer, see if I can find them. Then I would have done that. But I just kind of, like I said, there's a lot of ebb and flow. And I know some people want to hear like, no, I just go after these giant deer. And I just, I don't like, I just, I have fun with it. I love it. I'd never regret letting the arrow fly. And that's pretty much my biggest motto. Like if I'm going to shoot, it's because I'm jacked up and the people around me that I appreciate and talk to a lot probably are just as excited for me. And that's all that really matters to me. I respect that more than you can imagine, man. And I, I really, I really do. I love that mindset. And I think about like not hunting with trail cameras a lot. And I would have a, like a very similar mindset where all of a sudden this chase for the one deer for me disappears because unless I glass him in a field, I'm just not going to know that that one specific deer is there or like what other deer are in the area. And so I would, I would right off the bat, like my standards would be like, I'm going to go out and have fun and I'm going to kill a good deer. Like I'm going to, I'm going to go find mature deer and I'm just going to go chase them around and have a lot of fun. And so, and that's fun. And that's, that's exactly what oh, it's yeah. all about. I mean, at the end of the day, that's exactly what it's about. So, so yeah, I would have a very similar approach. You know, I've got asked that quite a bit and that's why I wanted to bring it up to you. And your answer was absolutely perfect because I feel like that would be very similar to my own thought process. If I look back at the most enjoyable moments I've had hunting in my life, a lot of them were before any of that stuff mattered to me. It was hunting oh, with my sure. dad and hunting with my grandpa and hunting with my brother. And, you know, every year I go back for the late muzzleloader season hunt that we have now in New York, which is a great time, by the way. And me and my brother just go kill deer. Like we just go right. out and we have an absolute blast. And those are some of my favorite memories. I mean, it's so, so the chase for a big one's great. But it's also a very, in my opinion, it, it can be a very selfish and very, it, it's full of solitude. Like that chase is very like singular and one tracked and it's all about you in a lot of cases. But when you just take a step back and you're like, you know what, I just want to go deer hunt and have fun. That opens up a lot of possibilities. And I don't think that that should be overlooked at all. I think that that's, I don't think that takes away from anybody who's a hunter or anything like that. I think it's, it's what's really important, what should be valued at the end of the day. So I really appreciate that. That definitely took a turn and it was a little different answer than I expected, but I love that answer. It was, it was absolutely awesome. So, so I do want to get into, uh, you spoke about sending me that picture of you glassing that deer, right? And you glassed that deer quite a few times. And oh, so, yeah. so let's dive a little bit back into strategy again. Let's circle back around and I'd like to just hear about like how you, how you go about glassing, because I know it's something that you probably enjoy and like, like I'll take my fiance and my son and we'll go get ice cream and we'll just go for mm -hmm. a drive and look for deer. And like, I make a family event out of it. And so it's acceptable all the time. Yeah. So like, I just want to kind of get your take on what your thought process is around glassing, because I know that without cameras, like really the only form of inventory that you can gain is either glassing or spotlighting. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, 
I definitely put glassing and spotlighting in the same bubble. Like my whole thought process evolved around those is the exact same thing because I use them the same way. Right. So like a, a real good example of how I use this would probably the easiest way to explain it would probably be this new property I was just talking about. It's like a hundred acres that my cousin's in-laws own and I'm allowed to bow hunt it. Not allowed to gun hunt it, but I'm allowed to bow hunt it. And uh, it's pretty much 50, 50, a big ag field and woods. And there's really not a lot going on in the woods. I mean, once I got in there, I found there was some edge, there were some different things, but it's just kind of your basic maple, oak, black cherry, ash type of woods, you know, not, Nothing really crazy exciting going on about it. So before really even jumping in there too much, I said to myself, well, I got to know what kind of deer are in this area. I had a general idea because it's this one specifically is right close to my home. So I know buddies that have hunted around the area. So I know the kind of potential it can have. I, I just cast a real wide net. Taking your words, <laughs> I cast a real wide net. And uh, like, I'll look for deer anywhere within like a, probably from the epicenter calling it the property I have permission for three miles in any direction. I'll just start driving around looking and being like, what does the block really have to offer this year? And if we're talking about this, I'm talking about preseason now. So we're talking, you know, probably end of June, July, August, September, like anywhere in that time frame when I have a little bit of time, I did get the girlfriend into it last year where she just like grab a book. And then, you know, what do you say? Like you said, grab some ice cream, try to make it enjoyable throw the dogs in the back of the truck. Everyone likes going for a ride. We call it truck jams. So we just, I pick a song, you pick a song. I pick a song, you pick a song. So it, it, you have to, you got to pick a good song, but then I'm driving around looking for deer on top of it, you know? Yeah. So I'm driving around, I'm trying to figure out where the ag fields are. I mean, in that situation, there's places where I'll just drive through not so much a neighborhood, but a you know a road that has houses, but just knowing like, Hey, there's a chance deer could just be walking around someone's backyard. You know, if they got a nice long cut, grass field in their backyard or something and just try to evaluate what kind of deer in the area if i see one that's like holy crap that's a giant deer i you know drop a little pin on my phone if i can sit there and watch it for a little bit i might and then i try to look at the the expanded view of the situation on my phone and say okay if that deer was going to get to my property once he shed velvet or during the rut how would he get there and then i start breaking down the the immediate property planning for the potential opportunity at the that deer so do you ever glass or spotlight a deer and it kind of sounds like that's what you're doing but like what's your thought process on trying to like like there's a there's a late summer early fall shift that happens right mm -hmm. what's your thought process on proximity to where you're glassing like how how far away are you okay with your hunting property being from that field that you're glassing or spotlighting and how much do you believe in that shift that's going to happen? So like, is that something that you rely on where you're like, Hey, like I've been back in here turkey hunting and this hillside's full of red oaks. And I know that they're going to be dropping and it's going to pull all those deer back off that bean field. That's going to get cut anyways. Like, mm -hmm. is that something that's going on in your head? A hundred percent. Yeah. Like, and this, it was one of those things that I always mentally prepared for, but couldn't prove it because I didn't have cameras out there in the woods. Right. So like I'd be going around these properties and I'd be looking and be like, oh, well, Jane Doe down the field, down the road's got this big field. And I know that the deer could end up up there because I know there's oaks up in there. Unless I see that specific buck, I don't really know if those are the same does that came across or, you know, how that really worked. But on this private piece, I was able to do that. I drove around the block. I found like anyone that's super passionate about it. I think you can almost confidently say I knew every buck that was almost every buck that was four years old or older just because they were that easily seen and you could see you know how it is especially you get like a nice cooler summer evening you could drive around and see every big buck in a, in a block as long as there's a field to see him in you know so i knew about all of, i mean people were telling me like oh i saw this one buck or my buddy saw this buck and i'm like scrolling through pictures through my my spotting scope i was like yeah i've been watching him for like three weeks dude like i know he's there and i was i kept thinking to myself if any of these deer get to that property how are they going to get there so i put trail cameras in spots that even my cousin, when he walked with me the one time, he's like, why are we going to put it here? And I was like, well, there is this oak here, but I, you know, I think just how the vegetation between the road and here kind of is a little bit thinner than the other areas. Like this is where a deer is going to cross the road from where he's been living by that bean field all year, cut through here. And I might only get one picture of him, but now I know he's in this block. 
And that actually happened with, I think I had sent you the video this year when I was hunting that property. That's that one real wide one that I snort wheezed at twice. And he came through the corn right back at me. That deer, I got one picture of at, at the end of August, beginning of September, he came right through that little strip of timber that I even hunt. I ended up hunting it later on just to see if it had any production during like the rut and stuff. I never saw a deer there, but that's the exact place of that. I knew that if a big buck was going to transition from that area over there, he'd probably just come through it. Like he's walking down a sidewalk, keep moving on until he got to the heart of that property. That's what he did. And I only got one picture of him there. And like I said, he had shifted because velvet drop crops got cut out and he wanted to be somewhere closer. He ended up going from the soybeans to the corn because the corn was standing for a bit and then even cut corn. You know how attractive that can be at times. So, Yeah, it definitely can be. And so one thing I do down here in Ohio when I'm getting that inventory of deer, like I said, I can use cameras here. And so I'm going to compare like what I do with cameras to what you're doing with glassing up there. Kind of what I've done with glassing up there as well and spotlighting. So down here in Ohio, I'll take each picture I get of a mature deer throughout the year. Like let's say he's on a hub scrape in one of the bottoms here, right? He's coming off a bed or multiple different bedding areas and he's hitting a scrape and then he's going out to an ag field. I'll take those pictures and try to get a general direction he was coming from. And then I'll compare that to like the wind direction for wind-based bedding. And so what I like to do is I like to pull those pictures up. Like, okay, three days this week, he hit this hub scrape and four days he didn't hit it. But the three days that he hit it, we had a Southwest wind. I'm like, okay, well, I've been in those woods and I know where the bedding's at for a Southwest wind. So I think I know where he's bedding. And I like, I can kind of narrow down and try to like get closer to that deer based on that. Do you ever do anything like that with trying to correlate that data that you're getting? Obviously it's real time with spotlighting or glassing, but do you ever look at like, take a step back and look at the big picture and say, okay, what's the wind direction doing and, and where do I think this deer came from and how can I capitalize on that? Yeah. And I think, you know, like anything, like I said, I'm not going to act like I tried to reinvent the wheel. I love learning. I love listening when you're on a podcast. I've talked to Glitzky before me and him have talked probably, like you said, I wish you and me got to get together and talk more, but me and Glitzky have probably talked about half as much as that, but we have each other's phone numbers and I've told him like, oh yeah, I'll call you. And then I just get so tied up with stuff because I wanted to pick his brain about something. So I'm always, I'm loving the ability to, you know, it's the beauty and the curse of social media and everything nowadays, because there's so much information out there. So I try to absorb as much of that as I can. Like you had mentioned how you're going to correlate some of that, that data that you're getting from whether it be weather information or whatnot in correlation with the pictures you have. When I go out glassing or I go out spotting, I try to make sure that I I keep track of those things as well so that I can try to make the assumption of, okay, he'll probably be back in there. And the reason I brought up trying to learn as much information as possible is I'd get caught up and say, you know, okay, I saw this deer crossing the road off a clear cut on a south wind or whatever, or he was in a cornfield on a south wind. Okay, well, I know that there's a thick area after a hundred yards of open timber that he's, he's got to be coming through. So I'm just going to hunt the general area kind of close to that trail where it comes out and hope for the best kind of deal. You know, I got pretty good at, you know, how far can I get off of that and how close can I get to it without the, the opportunity of the flyer chance that he takes the other trail and gets behind me and ruins everything. So I tried to this spring going back into that property because I had never stepped on that specific property until almost hunting season this year. Like I said, I drove around, but I just said to myself, there's no reason to dive into it now. I kind of know what it looks like. It doesn't have a lot for edge habitat. It's got like one thick area, a real open hardwood area, and then a big field. So I kind of had the idea of it. So this year in the spring, I told myself, I said, I'm going to go back there. I'm going to go try to find a bed. You know, I've obviously I know how to find deer beds and I've found hundreds of them just walking around the woods, but I'm like, okay, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to find a deer bed and be like, okay, is this just a random deer bed? Or is there a reason for this specific deer being in this exact spot? Because I can understand why a deer would be in a bedding area. Like conceptually, that was really easy for me. I've been doing that my whole life, you know, like hunting without a trail camera, you got to at least have an idea of where they're coming from. But now I want to hone in on it and be like, this is the specific 10 yard radius that he's probably laying in on that wind so that I'm not hunting 60 yards down that edge. And then watching him walk through the hardwoods out to the field because I misjudged where he should be or where I thought he should be or where the tree was perfect instead of, uh, you know, like hunting, hunting where the deer 
is going to be not where I want him to be type of thing. And ironically, when I did that, I found a couple and they just didn't feel right. And I found one more. I was like, now this one feels kind of good. It's kind of just like risen up a little bit, hemlock over the top. I took two more steps and I found that buck's shed from not that year, the year before all rotted out. I mean, it smelled like, you know, how like foxes and coons and, you know, coyotes, they chew on them and I think they pee on them because they smell. They sometimes they just smell like gross, but I could tell by the beam, even though it was all chewed down to the beam and the tines were down, like that was that buck. And I was like, holy crap, this, this is what those guys are looking for. That, that spot within the spot instead of just hunting an area. And so that was like a really cool thing for me for that light bulb to go off and say, now that I've used those weather pieces and all that in the past, now I can use it and really try to just like go right at them. Not, not have seven sits way back. And then all of a sudden he disappears because I've been in the woods too many times. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great point. And that's exactly what I was getting at as if you do that or not. And that's something I do here as well with, like I said, the trail camera photos. Uh, you know, I can look back when I was a kid in New York and we would be, we'd go around, like it was an activity for me and my grandpa to spotlight too. And one thing that we noticed a lot that I noticed anyways, I picked up on was we'd glass fields within like a mile radius. And a lot of times you'd see the same buck, but he'd be like multiple fields away. Right. And I could never figure that out as a kid. I'm like, why, why do the deer show up in totally different fields on different nights? But then three days later, he'll be back in the same field again. And it wasn't until you know, the last, let's say 10 years that I really started grasping what was going on there. And what I came up with was, and I've, I've proven this through spotlighting with my brother a lot, like specifically the last five years is a lot of times I'll glass a deer in a field, like I'll, I'll spotlight a deer in a field and I will be able to correlate that with a specific wind of what field he's on. So I've even seen it to the point where these deer are going to not only are they bedded in a certain place, but like because they're bedded there because of the wind, a lot of times it'll shift their food source too because they might be like up and over that next hill. And instead of going up over the backside, they just drop down to that next field that night, especially if it's the same food sources, like like alfalfa back home, right? Like at least mm-hmm. in the area of New York I'm from, alfalfa is pretty big. And so yeah. like I'd go glass, you know, there'd be a, a big hill, like a hill with roads on all four sides with alfalfa fields at the bottom of the hill. And that deer would show up in a different alfalfa field on different nights randomly. When I was a kid, I was like, what the heck's going on? But then I was like, oh my gosh, it's wind-based. Like he's, he's at, he's bedded nearest that field that day. And so he's just dumping down and hitting that alfalfa instead of walking three times as far to get to the backside. And I'm sure that you see the exact same thing is like they shift around out by you as well. Yeah. And one thing that was like a big eye opener for me is like, as you're growing up, you're always hearing, you know, the deer needs the wind. He needs the wind. So especially as a young kid, you're thinking, how would, how do you need the wind? You need the wind in your nose. So you need it in your face. So I'd always set up in these spots where I was like, okay, the, the wind's blowing into the bedding. I'm off the edge. The deer's going to come across in front of me because he thinks he can smell the whole field. And I don't know about you, but most of the big deer that I've killed, I've killed with the wind straight at their back. And I, I don't know if it's a, a thermal thing that I didn't understand when I was younger. And then I got older, like some of the, the spots now, when I see it, I'm like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Cause it's, he's getting some, he's smelling stuff behind him because of the predominant wind, but then he's getting a thermal there too. So that's why he's moving that way or something like that. I don't know if that's something that you see all the time, but I, I, I felt it, it was so confusing to me. Like, okay, that deer just walked out into the field and the wind's at his back or it's at the side of his face. So I would go to the bedding that would give him the wind in his nose. And I was completely like on the wrong side of the bedding area or something like that. Cause I just like, couldn't wrap my brain around like how they were walking out that way because of what media said or my understanding of media at the time. And now obviously it's, I've, I've just kind of tried to block as much of it out as I can, as long as I'm not learning something from someone else and just go into the woods and be like, all right, that's why that's happening. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I did the same thing and I've, I think I've witnessed just about every wind direction with them walking, to be honest, but it, it does seem like there's certain factors that go into it. Like if you have a field that's lower than the bedding area and the thermals are dumping from the bedding area to the field and there's a low spot, like I've noticed the deer walk in a certain way versus if the field's like at the top of the ridge, right? That just like right. changes. I, I think it's, it's just very, very like situational and very like site specific. Yeah, but that's that's kind of the evolution that we that we were talking about. And so we've really dove into some really good tactics about like locating deer and trying to pattern deer without cameras. And that was 
that was really the first goal that I had for this podcast. So what I'd like to get into next is like you, you did your glassing, right? And you, you've been in that area a lot and we're starting to get into season. Let's say it's getting really close to the opener. You have a list of bucks that you know of in an area and you're like, I want to go after those deer. What kind of things are going through your head as you get really close to the opener? If I'm hunting somewhere that has some ag, which is actually kind of a newer thing for me. So I'll just start with that just because it's a little bit fresher in my brain. As I'm getting closer to season, that's when I'm probably going to ramp up my glassing and my spotlighting because I want to know, is he getting there at night? Because in my brain, like if he's getting to that field at night and at dark, he's probably feeding somewhere else. He's not getting up at 45 minutes after dark to get up, to go to the field. He hasn't been pressured yet all season. You know, he did, he has no reason to be doing that. So if he's not getting there till later, and that's the only place I've been seeing him, where is he feeding before that? And is that on the property that I can hunt him? If he's not on the property, like last year, there wasn't a good oak drop, but if there was a good acorn crop on that property, cause there is a lot of oaks, I would have made the assumption that those deer were feeding there and then making it out there, but they weren't. So I was able to make the assumption and maybe I was wrong. Maybe I could have had another swing at the deer, but I made the assumption that since I was not seeing that wide buck until late at night when I spotlighted and never saw him just glassing, uh, that he was probably feeding off the property somewhere where he was getting a different food source and then making his way there. So I left him. I never hunted there until I hunted the front section. We have an early doe season now here in Western New York. And I think there might even be some parts up in uh, like the Northern tier area, but so I hunted the very front of it. And that was kind of like, I really wanted to shoot a deer and I actually carried the recurve the whole time, which was really fun. So I, I wanted to just also kind of observe the property and see if anything was happening. And once again, even in those situations, I wasn't seeing those bucks. So I said to myself, there's no reason for me to jump in here. I love chasing deer on all different types of property. I'm not going to waste the time and maybe flub it all up. I'll leave these deer here until I can take a shot at them, maybe pre-rut or, you know, during the rut or wherever I thought that it was going to be a good opportunity. So you just brought up a good point I'd like to cover really quick. And that's, you brought up like kind of the observation sets. And that is another tactic that you can use even before season, but specifically in season to try to just continue to have that inventory and the intel that you can't get from cameras. So do you utilize a lot of observation sets? And what is your thought process there? Uh, observations. Yeah, I do observation sits during season at times, but I'm definitely a lot more of a like, when I go in, I, I, if I don't feel like there's a hundred percent chance that I could draw the bow back and kill a deer, I, I kind of get a, I don't want to say uninvested, but like, I, I like being in the game. I like feeling like I'm hunting, you know, like I don't go, I, I spend the whole rest of the year looking at deer. Like I want to go for them, you know? So I love observation sits though, before season. There's no one else out there. I'll go into the woods and do an observation sit if I think I can do it in a way that like the deer has no idea that I'm there. So like we talked about in the beginning of the podcast, when you had sent me the picture of that last big buck that you killed, I was in a tree four days in a row before season. And prior to that, I sat in that exact same tree three other times in two weeks, just watching that field, getting up high enough. I found that I could climb the limbs of that tree without any sticks and then just tie in with my saddle as high up as I could go. And I could see over the top of this section of ag, just because of the way the hill rolled and everything. And I loved doing it. It was awesome. I saw all these deer. Nobody was out there. I parked real far away. So the deer never heard the truck stopping. Cause I knew they were betting really close to the field. And I ended up going in and hunting that spot opening day. And the second day, I think, and I did see human like tracks, you know, boot tracks and then truck tracks. When I pulled up on opening day, I just looked at myself. I'm like, I know that big buck ain't coming out. And I ended up seeing every other buck and the two doe groups that came out, they came out from the exact same spots and the buck didn't. And I think someone probably went in there and hunted it in the morning, just going out for a hunt, which I don't blame them. I mean, I hunt in the mornings all the time in October. I just love hunting. So I do it all the time. Maybe I take a different approach and try to go fill a doe tag somewhere where I don't have like a big buck in mind or a group of big bucks or decent bucks, however you want to talk about it. But but yeah, I love observation sits. I think they're super beneficial. And I think that if people were to utilize them outside of hunting season and use that as like a separate season, then I think that people would have a lot of success because one thing I've taken from Western hunting is you hear guys say that all the time, like, uh, like Almer and all those guys, 
I shot the deer on opening day, but I killed them 30 days before. You know, they'll go up on a mountain, just blast a giant mule deer. There he is. There he is. There he is. Wind shift. There he is. There, there he is. And then boom, they go on opening day. He's bedded right where he's bedded. Six out of the last seven days, they walk right over the top of him and drop an arrow in him. And it's like, that's why I said to myself, I said, I just got to go out there beforehand, put myself in a position where I can gain as much information as possible and then strike at him on opening day, which has never worked for me yet. But I have had opportunities. I have seen good deer. I just haven't connected on them doing it that way. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, from, from my experiences, the real-time glassing intel that you get from like an observation set or just from even driving down the road and, and just stopping and glassing and observing those deer, you know, you're learning their tendencies, you're learning where they come out based on different winds and everything else. I would take that data on ag sources, like big ag fields, over trail camera photos because that trail camera is going to be on one trail or like pointed in one direction. But being able to observe an entire field, in my opinion teaches you so much more about those deer than having one or two or even even multiple cameras on that field like that's something that to me is extremely valuable and recognize that as you know growing up in new york that's like one of the things up there and like for me it was uh it was I, my grandpa had an old sony handycam and i would just go film in the summertime so i'd put on like a ghillie suit and crawl out in the middle of a field on a hump lay down and i just like i would just videotape bucks and at the time, I didn't realize that that was valuable information until that season came around and I killed a deer on opening day based on that information. I was like, holy cow, like you can, you can pool this data all year if, if you have the right food source, like a field that's either going to get cut at the right time, like a cornfield, you know, you have like that golden five to seven days after it gets cut or an alfalfa field or even a hay field. Like if, if those deer are consistently coming out there and they're doing that same pattern, especially early October that data is just invaluable. Like that's as good as it gets as far as I'm concerned. Well, even little stuff like that, that specific field, at some point I'd like to hit on the fact that this is actually a really new concept for me hunting any kind of fields because almost every deer I've ever killed has been straight hardwoods. No, I mean, maybe a, a CRP field at the bottom of a hill or something like that, but that this whole, I just have found new opportunities that I didn't even know existed on public and on this new private piece. But to reiterate or go back to what I was talking about, the one day I saw this one really nice buck and I was like, that's going to be a shoot. I'll shoot that deer if he walks out opening day. Saw him, came back two days later, didn't see him or one of the other bucks that were in the bachelor group. I was like, wow, that's kind of weird. Seems pretty similar situation. Went back again, didn't see him again. For whatever reason, I don't know if, it, if I had put two and two together immediately at that point, but I decided to park farther away. I think actually what it was is there's a couple other vehicles driving around. I was like, well, I don't know who these people are. I used to have stickers all over the back of my truck. I was like, and people have sent me pictures of my truck. Like I'm sure you've probably had happen before. And I'm like, I'm done. Like I'm not parking anywhere near where I'm walking in. So I parked way far back. Boom. The, the deer were back again. And it was like three out of four days in a row that I was up in this tree. And then I started thinking a little bit more on it. I was like, I bet you those deer are hearing that gravel pop. You really haven't been pressured. Something's kind of weird and I'm out and it was a stiff, stiff wind the first day when I saw him, then it was two quiet days in a row. So that gravel popping was like firecrackers in their ear, I'm sure. So they must, I, my guess, I, if I had a trail camera out there, they probably came out. They probably just didn't come out as early as they were all the other days. Then I started parking up on the hill and he was there. He was there. He was there. He was there. He was, he never heard that gravel popping that stopped really close to where he was. And I think he just was super uncomfortable with it. And he knew that nothing ever was going to happen to him at night. You know, we, we always talk about, do we give the deer too much credit? But it kind of all lined up. Cause as soon as I started parking farther away, he showed up and he showed up and he showed up. So just little, little nuances that you got to pay attention to. And, and I think that's, that's just a big part of deer hunting is paying attention to the little stuff, I guess. It is. And it, to me, that's, that's a huge topic, right? Because Aside from the glassing in the in the summertime thing with the deer noticing that, same thing on your access to hunt. And I've a lot of the gravel roads I park on, I'm really cautious about where I park for that same reason. Where growing up in New York, like growing up in a high pressured state for me, that we had the ability to spotlight and the ability to glass. Same thing as you, I've recognized that these deer pick up on nuances like that very easily, like gravel popping. It almost seems like they know when you're going slower or faster too, like just on the sound of the gravel 
Or like when you're if, trying to stop to take a picture and they're like, I don't really yep. like that you're going that slow. Or if you put your car in reverse, like you put the car in uh-huh. reverse and it's game over, they're gone immediately. But like it's got to the point with me where I had a old F-150 with an exhaust on it, like a loud Roush exhaust because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I was a kid. Because um, why not? Why not, right? It, it sounded great. But what it did is it tipped all the deer off that I was glassing all the time. And so what I would do is I would take my grandpa's vehicle and we'd go glass together. And it was like, there was no doubt in my mind that when I would be in his vehicle with him, we would see far more deer and far more mature bucks in the same fields that I was glassing on a nightly basis, just because I didn't have my truck with that loud exhaust. Like they would hear me Mm -hmm. coming and it's like the big deer would just like vacate the field. They just knew that I was going to drive up there and stop and glass them and try to get pictures and everything else. So, so that's something to pay attention to as well. And the next thing I want to get into there, you touched on it a little bit, and I think it's a really important topic, especially in New York, is hunter pressure. You know, you talked about really having a pattern dialed on that deer, and it sounds like you were really close to being able to seal the deal. Then you had a guy go in there and hunt that morning, and like, so so from that point on, you're navigating hunter pressure and quite a bit of it, right? Like, I know where I hunt in New York, there's a, a good bit of pressure pretty much from the opener all the way through that late muzzleloader. So I'd just like to get your thoughts on the type of things that you're doing to try to combat that hunter pressure and navigate through it and still be successful every year. It's definitely something that I deal with and I, I don't want to make it sound like I, I deal with more hunter pressure than anybody, you know, cause like I, there's spots that I can say, especially during COVID dude, like there was parking lots that I'd see one person in or just me and my dad would go to. And then you'd roll, you'd walk down at lunch or something like that. And there'd be like eight, 10 trucks there. And that, that was like a holy crap moment for me. I was like, wow, I really got to pay a little bit more attention to what everyone else is doing more than just what the deer are doing. Cause it's gotta be affecting them. And so, yeah, it's something that I got to deal with pretty often. And I try to just attack opening day. Like the deer are going to do what deer are going to do. Don't try to overthink it. And like I said, I've killed deer on opening day. None of my biggest ones have been, but, uh, just go in there and enjoy it. Just like have a game plan go after it. If it works cool, if you see the buck even better, but if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And then start to assess the hunting pressure. And are they hunting right in the immediate area that you are? Like in that situation, people were definitely parking there. I was paying attention every night I left. I'd shine the, my light out the window and be like, all right, there's no new, you know, truck tracks. The grass hasn't been matted down because I don't turn around there and I don't park. And then all of a sudden opening day, they were there. So I knew that someone had been there I was there Friday night. It opened on Saturday or whatever. And those, those tracks showed up Saturday morning at some point. Cause I was there Saturday afternoon or whatever the situation was specifically at that point. Then I have to ask myself, is there a different food source? Like we had talked about, if there isn't a different food source, is there a second bedding area that I think that the deer, you know, are they going to push back to a second bedding area that is maybe gives it more of a visual advantage, like that specific spot. I knew that there was an area that kind of, he was kind of betting in this bottom, which was, like I said, again, kind of a newer thing for me. Cause I, a lot of the stuff I've hunted in the past has just been hills or mountains, whichever you'd like to prefer to call them. And they're bedded off the points and kind of hunt them as they're coming up towards the top of the ridge type of deal. This guy was bedded in a bottom. And I think the guy must've walked down in that relative area because that's also where the boot tracks were going. So I figured he, this deer either just moved a little bit if he didn't feel too spooked about it and probably moved up the hill because he was still going to get the wind and thermal advantage in that spot, just a little in a little bit different way, I thought, or he's going to bump all the way back to where there's a big section of hardwoods and maybe he's going to start bedding in the green briar and stuff like that. So I ended up actually the second day of season, hunted a spot in the morning, it was a new area for my dad too, because he had never hunted it and didn't walk it with me. So I kind of like put, walked into a spot and just went on an observation shift just to see if I saw any deer in this other spot. And then that afternoon I got in real early. I just kind of walked back to a spot like we had talked about earlier, where I knew there was some deer sign in the past. And I was going to move my way slowly into that area. And if it didn't seem fresh from this year, just keep moving back. In that situation, I think I made the wrong call that specific day because I ended up bumping what sounded like a pretty good deer. Cause I got a flash of him and I saw some rack and I could hear it banging around, but I didn't see the immediate sign and maybe shame on me to say that deer's probably only been back here for a day at this point. Like how much sign was he really going to drop? And maybe in that situation, if I had just set up in an area that historically looked good, maybe I had a chance, but I kind of bombed through it, 
kicked him out or a good deer out and then just kind of kept moving forward to the next spot. And it kind of led to a lot more of those sits that were kind of throwing darts at the wall type of sits, thinking about the sign that I had found previously in correlation with stuff I was seeing in the moment. Like, is there good browse? Is there a good mass crop dropping here, et cetera, et cetera. And I ended up running back into that deer and I just couldn't get him killed. He came right at me at, at 30 yards and he was looking and then he just, he had a little bit spooky. Some other guys actually walked literally underneath me that morning and I flashed the light at him and they just kind of flashed it back. And it was kind of in a high traffic area, but I just felt like it was a good kill spot. And, uh, the combination of that and maybe just made the wrong call of which side of the trail to be on. He came right at me at 30 and he just got kind of spooky. And I think he got their ground scent and he just kind of did the, like turned inside out and just kind of trotted back. But I had him, I was drawn on him and it almost happened. But for me, like I look at hunter pressure and the the way that I've attacked it, it might not be the right way. It could definitely be the wrong way, especially if you're like after a specific deer or, you know, a bunch of good deer in the area. But typically like when I get around a bunch of hunter pressure, I'm just the kind of guy where I'm like, I, I really love my solitude. And so I just vacate like, uh, okay, I got another spot. Like I'll go hunt somewhere else. I'll go find a new deer. And it sounds like you're still going in there and you're trying to pursue like the deer in that specific area. So are you seeing the hunting pressure in New York, right? Like, are you seeing that hunting pressure get to the point where it's pushing the deer completely out of those pockets or are they just kind of trying to inhabit within those people and just, you know, like move left when they move right and just kind of just live right under their noses? Yeah. That's something that I think you have to determine in the moment, you know? So I've definitely had situations where I was like, you know, I'm going to go to this spot because it's always good in the rut and I'm going to go hunt it. And then I realized I saw like four people walking around, like I said, especially that COVID, the COVID year is probably the best, very clear example I can give someone. And I'm not doing this pluggy, but it's like something that I, I kind of tried to show in the one video when I killed this buck, I was hunting spots that I knew historically November 7th through the 11th, I can go sit there and I can throw an all day sit at it if I have to, and a good deer is going to come by. And I sat there a day and a half. And I saw, I think like eight people and I was just mind blown. I was like, well, these deer just aren't here right now. Like there, there's no reason to keep sitting here because it's been too much pressure too often that the deer just said, I don't need to go there. It's not the risk first reward situation. Is, it's just not there right now. And if I was going to see a deer, it was going to be such dumb luck that it was like, this isn't how I like to hunt. You know, I want, I want to feel like I'm in the game. Like I said, I want to feel like every time I walk into the woods, there's a chance I'm going to bend the limbs back and I'm going to let one fly. So I decided to move into a different area. I got on a completely different ridge system and uh, I, I dove into an area that I thought should be pretty good. And uh, I started hunting that, that section and I got up in this one tree and I wasn't seeing anything, wasn't seeing anything. And uh, all of a sudden one guy ends up walking behind me. He's like walking in with a climber and I think a crossbow or something. Cause we have a, a later section of crossbow. Then another guy came walking through the woods. And for some reason, people in New York think like now that it's crossbow season, it's like opening day, a gun. And they just walk around like Elmer Fudd, which like I'm all about taking the opportunities to get outside. But it's like you still have a piece of archery equipment, dude. Like you're not going to launch an arrow 80 yards through the woods. You know, like you got to hunt like you got to get get to a spot or like actually sit still enough that you're still hunting, you know, like. You can't, you're not going to jump a deer and shoot it like you are with a slug gun. It's just not going to happen. I, and for some reason, people, I think, think that that's a viable option. But this other guy walks through, I'm like grunting at him, trying to make like animal noises to get him to like, hey, I'm over here. He finally sees where I am and kind of works off. And I kid you not, he just gets like kind of past me about 50 yards to what would end up in my downwind side, but not that, that mattered. And I, I hear something, I look up, the little binoculars up, here's a row of does standing on the top of the ridge watching him leave. And I'm like, holy crap, these deer are so used to that hunting pressure that they're getting just on the fringe of that pressure until they feel safe. And I watched them all come right down the hill, came right down the hill, crossed these trails, and I ended up making a new adjustment in the morning to uh, get in a better spot where I thought maybe some bucks would cross those doe trails where they were coming off the top of the ridge and that that 10 pointer came right up behind me and I, I shot him at 27 and he went 10 yards, you know, 20 yards after that. And it was just awesome. But even in that spot, like I said, there was that physical pressure that I knew was there. And when I was getting into that spot, I forgot to even mention, I found four tree stands within it, two ladders, a climber and a lockout. 
and they were all within all easily within 200 yards of where I shot that deer from ground level. I couldn't see those tree stands. So that those guys would have never seen any of those deer that I saw that night or that morning when I shot that 10 pointer. But when I got up to the top of the tree, I could see their stands. Like they were that close, but the deer were just, they were, it was almost like it became a piece of topography where the deer were like, we can't go there. That's impenetrable. We're not going there. We're going to be up here. We're, you know, I'm sure there was some thermal reason, you know, it was coming uphill and they were above them. So those bucks and the does, everyone was smelling if anyone was sitting down there. And I just kind of penciled my way right in between the two of them slivered right in. And I was right between where they felt safe away from those guys. And we're still moving pretty naturally. And he, like I said, he came up crossing a deer trail and he almost died in the scrape that I knew was behind me. The thing I can take away from that is I need to probably not get as discouraged as I do immediately when I see hunter pressure, especially when I go back to hunt like New York or, or for instance, Kansas two years ago was just like New York. It was insane with hunter pressure when I got out there and it discouraged me and it kept pushing me around into a pocket, which I think can be good. But I also think that it can be detrimental if you like there's areas and there's states where you might just get into hunter pressure just about everywhere and you're just going to have to battle it at some point. And I think that the big takeaway there is just don't become discouraged by that hunter pressure if you're in a state that has high pressure. And, you know, we always talk about on podcasts and I'm really guilty of this myself of, of getting away from that hunter pressure. And a lot of guys probably listen to these. And I know like if I was a kid, I would have listened to honestly, some of my own podcasts at a certain point and, and thought, well, that's great that that guy's doing that, but like, I must be terrible at this because I can't find a spot that doesn't have hunter pressure. Like he's saying, get away from it, get away from it. But some areas you just can't get away from it and you just have to learn how to battle within it. And I think that's, that's something that you are definitely excelling at that, that you bring to the table. So man, we're at uh we're a little bit over the hour mark. I think this has been a great oh, no show. Crap. Yeah, it's been, it's been a fast hour. That's for sure. <laughs> been a great show i could sit here and talk to you all night i really could i I love your passion i love your thought process that goes into it and everything else and i really appreciate that you came on the show today i'd love to have you on again at some point we could do like some hunt breakdowns or or a season recap after you kill a good one this year because i know you're going to go out and do exactly that so knock on wood hopefully i didn't jinx you but uh but hey man where can uh people find out more about you yeah so uh my instagram and my youtube are hitting the dream h i i t i n g the dream and um that's just a hit was my original piece and it stands for honor integrity instinct and tradition and those are just things that encompass the way i approach the outdoors and then hitting the dream is just like a little bit of a play on words of like living the dream so that's just kind of how i came up with that that name for all my stuff and uh then like i said i have facebook too it's tyler anthony not tyler skrotsky but i uh um i don't really use that too much i wouldn't say that there's that probably as much value there it's kind of more like for my family and friends that are out of state just so i cross post my instagram stuff but if you all you have is facebook feel free to to follow that as well if you want to get in on some of that stuff that i got going on that's perfect well hey man thanks again for coming on the show today i really appreciate it and hopefully we talk to you soon Most definitely, brother. I appreciate it and uh, hope you have a great night. Sounds good, man. Thanks. All right, folks, that is it for today's show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and written review. See you next time. 